So last week, um, my wife and I, Sandra, my wife Sandra and I, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> so last week, my wife Sandra and I, we went out to Hudson. And um, in Hudson, they were holding an event. It was a youth event. And Sandra was asked to speak on, uh, isn't Christianity restrictive? So she spoke on that twice. And we had about as much time for her speech as she did for Q&A. And we noticed something, and that was the majority of the questions that we received, something like three-fourths of those questions, um, weren't really about the topic at all. And that's fine, because the, the youth could ask whatever they would like. Um, but the question, in summary, was something like this. With so many religions out there, how can we as Christians claim to be the only right ones? With so many religions out there, how can we as Christians claim to be the only right ones? Can you throw it forward? Um, and so for Christians, this poses an interesting challenge, doesn't it? Um, because if you think about the, the passage of Scripture that we started with, Acts in Acts 4, you have um, Peter and John, and they've just been called in by the Jewish leaders because there's a crippled man who's been healed. And they're called in front of them, and they're asked this question, by what means has this man uh, been healed? And Peter and, and John, they talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and they say that because of this, that there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so for Peter and John, they're living in this pluralistic society. There's a society with lots of different religions and gods on offer. And they're saying here that there is no other name, that there is no other name that can bring salvation. It's not at the name of Buddha. It's not at the name of Muhammad. right? Statements like this, they rule out other religions. They exclude all other names. And so this could be deemed what we called this topic, exclusivity, right? Is there really salvation and no one else? Is Jesus really the exclusive way to God? And so these are really good questions. And um, it's such a good question that I'm gonna be spending the entirety of my sermon focusing in on it today. Usually when questions like this come up, we'll give it a few minutes. Um, but even with the entire sermon dedicated to this, I'm really only gonna get to look at a few angles of this question. And so back in Hudson um, at that youth event, one of the guys in the front row, he explained it like this. He said, you know, I have a lot of friends who are Muslim. In fact, most of them are Muslim. And um, some of them have sent me videos by scholars defending their beliefs. And I'm wondering, how can I tell them they're wrong? Are they really wrong? Is there really anything different? And I think what this young man was expressing is, is something that a lot of us struggle with if we're honest as well, right? We have these sort of internal conversations. We meet other good people who have very different beliefs than us. And then that causes us to question, are they wrong or are, are we wrong, right? Or maybe, maybe neither of us should be asking this question. Maybe deep down both religions, they're striving for the same thing. Is there salvation and no other name but Jesus? And so most of us react against exclusive claims like this because there's a, I want to say, a rightly placed sensitivity towards what sometimes happens in religious fundamentalism. And what happens is that someone doesn't only think they're right, but that their right beliefs make them superior to those who think differently, right? And this leads to arrogance. And, and not only arrogance, I want to say that it leads to intolerance as well. When we think that we're superior to someone, we tend to, to pull away from them, to to distance ourselves and not even want to hear their beliefs. 
And so many conclude, if we emphasize the differences between religions, if we claim that one religion is superior and exclusively true, it will only lead to intolerance and arrogance and division and strife and war. But we don't want that, right? We want tolerance and we want unity and we want peace. And so, Jordan, the only way to achieve peace is to play fair and acknowledge the good role that all religions bring to the table, including Christianity. In fact, Jordan, for you to go on up there talking about Jesus being the only way to God is exactly the problem in the world, right? This sort of religious fundamentalism, that's exactly what's wrong, right? You need to become a kinder, a more compassionate, a more tolerant human, one that acknowledges the truths in all religions and that none has the upper hand. And so, Jordan, you need to imagine it something more like this. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You might say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. What's John Lennon saying here? Imagine there wasn't any religion to fight about. People would embrace the present and live in unity and peace and in humility and tolerance. But would they? I think there are two ways of going about this. There are two responses we can offer. One that I think won't work and one that I think will. And the first response is a lot like Lenin and to say that all religions are the same. Um, And this usually comes in the form of this illustration. You've probably heard this before. It's about the six blind men and the elephant. And the six blind men are going along and they come across an elephant and the elephant allows them to touch him. And so one feels the trunk and he says, the elephant is like a snake, is long and flexy. And one feels the leg and they said, elephant, no, 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 it's not like that. He's, he's like a tree, strong and straight. And another one fears the ear and he's like, no, the elephant is like thin and floppy. But if you could only step back, they say, you would see that all the blind men, they're just feeling different parts of the same elephant. And in that same way, the point of the story is that aren't all the religions of the world just observing and experiencing different pieces of God? Some describe God like this, and some describe God like that. But in the end, all these religions are the same. Well, Leslie Newbigin was a Christian theologian, and he, used to, he lived uh, in India for the most Part, the greatest part of his life. Um, he used to get this illustration all the time. And one day he noticed that in order to claim um, that all the different things being described, the, the, the snout and the leg and the ears, that they're all one elephant, where, where would you have to stand? What position would you have to take? Well, you would be the one who's, who's standing back, the one who sees the whole elephant, right? And remember, the people are blind, so you're the one who sees. So unlike all those poor blind men, you're the one who's standing back and you see the full picture. And now it's up to you to tell everyone else, all those religious fundamentalists, what they've missed. But what really, what really have you achieved here if you've done this? Who really is being the religious fundamentalist? See, this analogy has the veneer of humility on it. But Tim Keller says it like this. When you say no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality that you think is superior to everyone else's. And when you say no one should convert anyone to anyone else's religious view, that is a religious view that you want to convert people to. You see, 
casting all religions as the same hasn't solved their problem. It's only actually just moved the goalpost and it's produced another view that considers itself superior to others. And so saying all paths lead to God is just as arrogant as saying there's one path leads to God. A claim like this requires having arrived at a knowledge that all these other belief systems have been blind to. But the problem with saying all the religions are the same isn't just arrogance. I wanna say it's also intolerance. And I'm gonna illustrate this with an example from our own church family. Um, my wife, Sandra, and Vivian, who plays here on our music team, they go almost weekly to a mosque in St. Henry. And this is a, a Sunni Salafi mosque. And they'll meet uh, on Sundays there with the ladies for sometimes two to four hours at a time. And they'll, they're, there they're gonna, you know, they discuss the differences between Christianity and Islam. And they do this with the goal of understanding and presenting Jesus to them. And now imagine if one of us, right, or someone, they were to go into there and sit down and look at the Christian woman and look at the Muslim woman and say, you know, you might think your beliefs are different, but deep down, they're really all the same. (laughs) Another way of saying this would be those distinctives you care about so deeply, they don't really matter, right? Like, how disrespectful would that be, right? Both the Muslim ladies and the Christian ladies would look at them and say, you haven't been listening to us. Ravi Zacharias says it like this. He says, we postmoderns, we like to think that religions are superficially different but fundamentally the same. But in reality, they're superficially the same but fundamentally different. And so you see, saying all religions are the same, claiming that all they're the same, they actually, this claim, it ends up excluding each individual claim. Right? And so we already saw that claiming one religion was exclusive rejects the other beliefs, but claiming they're all the same, that in turn res- it excludes each individual belief. And so by their nature, if you think about it, truth claims are exclusive. Everybody makes exclusive truth claims. And if you think you don't, you just haven't listened to yourself. We all make exclusive truth claims. The question then is, which exclusive truth claim is the antidote to the arrogance and the intolerance and the superiority that we face? Which exclusive truth claim is the antidote to the superiority, the arrogance, and the intolerance that we face? And so you see, the problem here isn't religious fundamentalism. See, we all have fundamentals that we adhere to. Adhere to. Um, our fundamentals might be different. Most people connect fundamentalism with violence, but the Amish, if you think about it, they're fundamentalists. The question is, what are they fundamental about? Right? And so what I've argued in this first response is saying all religions are the same, like the elephant analogy, it fails us. And so our second response is to acknowledge the differences. Acknowledge the differences between religions. The differences matter, right? And the differences, in other words, make a difference. And so what I want to propose to you is that the very things that make Christianity unique, the very things that make Christianity unique are the sort of antidote to the superiority and the arrogance and the intolerance that we keep running into. Antidote. And so let's look more closely at three claims that are unique to Christianity. It's going to be the way that God reveals, the way that God redeems, and the way God renews. So first, the way that God reveals. Let's go back to our original question. Is there salvation in no other name? 
I think one of the things that drives this question is that we think about religion a lot like we think about flavors of ice cream. And so uh, Brittany, she might like vanilla, and Josiah over here, he might like chocolate. And then Beth over there, she likes chocolate vanilla squirrel. So she can go off to McDonald's and she can get her chocolate vanilla swirl. And, and that's cool. That's good for her. That's what she prefers. It's what's work, right? And I think we often think about religion a lot like flavors of ice cream. <laughs> but the unique claim that Christianity is making is that God has revealed himself in space and time. So this isn't like flavors of ice cream. It's a lot more like the laws of nature. And so say, for example, I take you with me to the CN Tower, and we're both, um, there's this thing called edge walk, and you can harness yourself in, and you suspend yourself over the side. And so we're up there, and we're both on edge walk, and you look over to me, and you say, Jordan, I don't believe in the laws of gravity. And you start to unbuckle your harness. <laughs> He's like, no, don't do it. No, why? Because it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in the laws of gravity. If you let go, the laws of gravity will take over, and you will die. And so this is a, a lot more like the type of claim that Christianity is making. It's not based on our preferences like flavors of ice cream. It's based on reality, like the laws of nature, gravity. And so how can we say this? How can we claim that Christianity is more than preference, that it's reality? Well, because in Christianity, our first point, that God has spoken that he has revealed himself progressively in the words of scripture. And he hasn't just revealed himself in the words of scripture, he's revealed himself in the word made flesh, what the apostle John says. The word who was with God and the word who was God. That Jesus was the word. Jesus was God who came down from heaven to show us who God was. This is the incarnation. This is a unique belief of Christianity. And in the absence of this, I want to say that we're all blind, that we're all left in the dark musing and philosophizing about who possibly could God be, and that there's absolutely no way of seeing through this unless, unless God steps into our reality in space and time and speaks. And that's exactly what he's done. And so going back to that analogy of the elephant, one theologian says, it's as if we're all there blind, and then the elephant in the analogy has spoken and says, this is who I am. And so Martin Luther could say, the great theologian, that we're all blind beggars, but I'm merely one blind beggar showing another blind beggar where he's found bread. And so now that God has spoken, now that God has revealed himself, our understanding of him, it isn't based on our, our preferences. It's not based on our ability to perceive him. Rather, we just need to acknowledge what has occurred in space and time. This is unique. This is unique. The way God reveals is unique. And the second unique claim of Christianity is the way that God redeems. Romans 5.8 says this, God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, sin. Right? This, isn't, this isn't a word that we use very much anymore. And I don't know, maybe it's right because it makes us uncomfortable. But even if we don't use this word very much anymore, it doesn't, it doesn't actually do away with the thing itself. That's still their sin, right? The very things that we've been talking about, superiority complexes and arrogance and intolerance, we could just sum it up in that one little three-letter word, sin. And if we're honest, we're all guilty of this. We all have this tendency to look down on those who are different than us. It could go like this. You, you meet someone who is arrogant and you think, my goodness, th thank goodness I'm not like them. 
or you meet someone who's intolerant and you think, well, my goodness, I will, I'm never gonna have them over for lunch. And so we all, we all suffer from this. We all suffer from arrogance and intolerance. And we can't escape this. We can't escape the arrogance, the intolerance, the superiority complex. At least we can't escape it on our own. And you see, while we were still sinners, while we were still arrogant and intolerant and superiority complex people, God showed his love for us. And how did he do it? He did it in the word revealed. He did it by stepping out of heaven in the person of Jesus and humbling himself. He, he laid aside the, the rightly deserved glory and honor of heaven and took on a form of a man and he lived the perfect life, a life opposite to our life, a life full of compassion and full of love. And he took the consequences of our sin. And the end result, the end result, if you think about it, of our intolerance and our arrogance and our superiority complex becomes breakdown and it's death and that's exactly what Jesus faced for you. He took the death that you deserved so that you could live in the newness of life that he now has, resurrected. That's astounding. That's a huge change, right? This is the antidote that we have been looking for. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he did it so that we could be brought back to him, so that we could reconcile an in-right relationship with God. So I want you to notice something here, that everything I'm talking about, this salvation, it's premised on something. It's premised on acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you are broken, that you suffer from these things, that you suffer from intolerance, that you suffer from arrogance, that you suffer from a superiority complex. And so we can say like Paul, Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. Paul, right, the apostle, he wrote much of the New Testament, and he says, I am the chief, I am the worst of all sinners. How could he say this? He could say it because when we understand the grace that we have received, we are made more aware of our sins than anyone else's sins, right? And so this salvation is unique. And it's saying, unlike all the other philosophies and religions of the world, that it's nothing you know, and it's nothing you feel, and it's nothing that you do can enable you to know God. But rather, you see how acknowledging we're symbol, this humbles us before those who are different, that we are the worst of all people. This is the antidote to arrogance, what we've been looking for. It's, if it's nothing you know, right, you can't look down on those who don't understand. And if it's nothing that you feel, you can't look down on those who haven't experienced it. It's nothing you do, you can't look down on those who haven't achieved. Rather, salvation in Jesus' name, it's a gift. And it's a gift that we have undeservingly received. It's reconciling, relationship-restoring grace. And this, my friends, is the humble antidote to arrogance. And finally, the last claim that I'll give you that's unique, is that God renews. God renews. We saw that salvation is, is offered in Jesus' name, that he promises reconciliation, a right relationship with God. It's just not just that, right? This has implications that, that go outward, that Christianity promises not an escape from this earth into heaven, but the renewal and transformation to make this earth as it is in heaven. Because God promises the renewal of all things, we then work with certain hope towards making this world a better place. The Sri Lankan theologian, Vinoth Ramachandran, says this. Put it forward. 
Christian salvation lies not in escape from this world, but transformation of this world. If someone says, surely there is salvation in other faiths, I always ask, what salvation? What salvation? This is a good question to ask. What is the end goal? What is the type of salvation on offer in the other philosophies and religions of the world? I think that most of us in the West, we assume that the end goal is relationship with God, or at least it's God. This is a sort of Rome that all the roads lead to. But the reality is quite different. Think about it, Eastern religions, they present nirvana or moksha, right? Escape from this world. The sublimination of your desires and self into the great cosmic oneness of the universe. There's no God to be talked about. There's no relationship, certainly not with God to be talked about here. Rather, this is a detachment from reality. It's not a renewed earth. This is not the end goal. What does atheism present? Nothingness, that'll be the way, the way it was before you were born. What does uh, Islam present? It presents paradise. And here, interestingly, it's, it's the forbidden, the sorts of pleasures that were forbidden on earth, they now take center stage in paradise. And the language that is used is not of father and, and child, like daughter and son, but more commonly of, of master and of slave. Shabir Akhtar, who was gracious enough to have lunch for me, actually writes this. He's a Sunni Muslim theologian. Muslims do not see God as their father or equivalently themselves as children of God. Men are servants of a just master. They cannot, in Orthodox Islam, typically attain any greater degree of intimacy with their creator. So in Islam, it's not about intimacy with God. Talk about God and, and relationship with God is noticeably absent of descriptions of paradise. And so my point here is this. I think we've taken way too much for granted in assuming that the philosophies and the religions of the world lead us to relationship with God, more or less God at all. That's a claim, interestingly, uniquely, that is made in Christianity amongst all the religions of the world. And so is there salvation in any other name? Well, what we've seen here is that the very things that make Christianity unique, the way that God reveals, the way that God redeems, the way that God renews, they themselves are the antidote to arrogance and intolerance that we face. That God, by stepping into a reality, giving blind beggars bread, right? He redeems us while we're still some of those sinners, humbling and empowering us to love those who are different. And he promises to renew this earth, giving us certain hope and love that it will be achieved, that reconciliation will be achieved in him one day. And this is what we need. God's grace, right? This exclusively is the antidote. God's grace exclusively is the antidote. So if you take this at the center of your life, it will humble you before people who think differently than you. And it will give you a love and respect for people who think differently than you. I'll end with this. Three things. Allow God's grace to humble with you. Allow God's grace to humble you. <laughs> We all struggle with arrogance and pride. Philippians 2 says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, took on the form of a servant and made himself of no reputation. And as you think about what Jesus has done for you, this will begin to change you. This will begin to humble you. Are you aware, you can ask this question, are you aware more of your own sins than you are aware of the sins of others? 
Are you more aware of your own sins than you are aware of the sins of others? That if you were the only person who ever lived, Jesus still would have had to die for you. You believe that? Take time to listen. As Christians, I think one of our sort of golden virtues is, is tolerance. I had, um, had lunch with Andrew yesterday, and uh, there he is. <laughs> I had lunch with Andrew yesterday, and um, imagine if we were sort of talking, I was like, hey, yeah, we had, you know, me and Andrew had lunch yesterday, and you're like, oh, how did it go? And I said, oh, it was, it was tolerable. You'd be like, what? <laughs> like, Andrew's your friend? You, what do you mean by tolerate? We, we want more than to just be tolerated, right? And at the heart of the Judeo-Christian worldview is the idea that we are made in the image of God, that we all reflect some of the divine nature, and that if God is infinitely valuable, then you are inherently valuable. And so it enables us not to just tolerate people, but gives us the framework to say, we respect others. We respect them because they're made in the image of God. And so we take time to listen. We take time to listen to those who are different than us. Saying all religions are the same can allow for this sort of laziness that we don't need to look into what these religions are saying. But if they're different, it's important to take time and to listen and to cultivate respect for the other. When we listen, there's a sort of a self-death that occurs. We have to stop what we're saying and allow the other person to speak and to challenge us, right? Challenge what we would believe. In a city like this, Learning what other people believe, this is like the United Nations. You don't need to go out and buy books and study. I'm not calling you to do that. I'm just saying take time. Sit down, listen to your coworkers. Listen to the people that you study with. And show them the respect and the honor that God gives you. And then finally, the harmony of true love. Truth and love. These aren't two concepts that I've been using really um, in my sermon, but I think it, they're helpful for bringing together sort of all of the ideas that we've been talking about. You see, we tend to err on the side of either downplaying truth and that we wanna say all religions are the same and wash over the differences, or we wanna err on the side of downplaying love, and then we end up arrogant and intolerant. But Paul writes about speaking the truth in love, and the truth that he is referring here is the truth that is in Jesus, because Jesus is the truth and the love of God personified. And so we don't have to choose between those two things, right? We only have to choose the one, the one who exclusively held them together, truth and love, on a Roman cross. And so this is the harmony of truth and love, uniquely held together in the Christian worldview. And so if you're here today and you're challenged by this, Pray that God will give you wisdom. That you would see in Christianity, it uniquely is offering, I'm proposing, the antidote to the very problem that is taking this culture apart. The antidote to arrogance and to intolerance and to superiority complex. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much 
that you have given yourself for us, that you have revealed who you are, that you hold truth and love together, and that one is not at the expense of the other, and that you loved us even with our intolerance and our arrogance and our superiority complexes right to the point of death, the death that we deserved. And I pray that you would challenge us with that this morning, that we would be humbled in the reality of this. God, that you would work and that you would speak in our lives. We give over this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.